Let's open with a word of prayer, shall we? Father God, we just come to you in praise and thanksgiving for this opportunity to gather together to hear your word preached and proclaimed and to praise you, to worship you, to, to pray to you this morning. Lord, I ask that as we continue our series on 1 John and, and this, um, this look this morning into the Gospel of John, as we, as we look at the, at the nature of hatred, understanding the biblical view of hatred, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to this teaching, that you would close our ears to any error that I may speak. Father, that you would open our hearts and show us where there is hatred. Lord, that you would show us where we are hating others, where we have been vulnerable to hatred, where we need to change, Lord, as we continue to dig deeper and deeper into this. Lord, we all have it. We all struggle with it. We've all been victims of it. Uh, but we're in a society now that is increasingly marked by this hatred. And yet we as Christians have to learn how to deal with this society. How do we do it? How do we speak into it? Teach us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was, um, I was writing this week and I was thinking about it. I was looking at the gospel of, I mean the uh, First John, and, and this was our, our, our gospel passage in the gospel of John, John 15, 18 to 25. And uh, as Andy knows and uh, Chris knows and others, uh, sermons are kind of a work of art. They're not really, they're not really um, a math problem or anything like that. And so, and so as, you, as you write, sometimes I'll start in one place and end up in a very different place. And God just kind of took me through <clears throat> the gospel passage today. It's going to be linked to our First John series. But as we're going down and looking at the nature of hatred, really kind of look at the gospel passage, which is supporting our First John passage this morning. And so that's where we're going to take off this morning. It will be linked. If you didn't hear our sermon last week, I would encourage you to go back and look at it because it kind of sets the tone or sets the, the, um, the foundation for what we are doing. So I was reading a Newsweek article this week. It, it, it comes off a, a couple of um, podcasts I had heard. But it was on May 21st, and it's off Newsweek and this year, and it reports... Um, uh, a University of Pennsylvania associate professor was participating in a webinar from University of Virginia. Yes, that evil university. It was. I went to Virginia Tech, so don't worry about it. It's our it's our rival university. But was participating in a webinar panel, and she said this: "As much as I hate to say this, I'm going to put it this way: If evangelicals don't change, they pose an existential crisis to us all." That's right, to the existence of us all. Butler said during the virtual panel discussion, according to a video recorded, posted online, they have divided the nation politically. They don't want to believe in climate change. They don't want to get vaccines. They are part and parcel of the reason why we cannot move forward. Because they say they have religious beliefs, but this is religious recalcitrance. It's not something that's about belief. It's not what they believe theologically. It's about positionality that they have that they have chosen to have that is taking us all over the brink, she said. And because they are being selfish and because they don't care, their racism, their sexism, their homophobia, their lack of belief in science, their lack of belief in common sense may end up killing us all, the professor added. 
This was backed up by a Stanford professor who spoke <clears throat> just a little bit later. Now, her statement, unfortunately, reflects what has become an increasingly popular pastime of our intelligentsia and our press corps. There's a very troublesome attack on Christians across many platforms. If you haven't been reading it, you can find it in the Washington Post. I read it constantly in the Atlantic. You find it in the New York Times. You find it on many uh, press, on, on, on many television stations. There's a lot of the most dehumanizing articles, most often targeted against white evangelicals, but you need to understand what's happening when they say white evangelicals and critical race theory. You're not a white evangelical because of your skin color. You're a white evangelical because of particular beliefs you have. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. They'll, they'll, they'll say you're a white evangelical no matter what your skin color is, if you have particular beliefs, but they'll say that. But it doesn't really matter because the, the attacks are coming against all Christians, no matter what their beliefs, if they're on a biblical belief side. They're also been increasingly coming against Catholics, which are attacked with vitriol as well. And the level of hostility is alarming, to be sure, as is the gaslighting that's coming with it. Gaslighting basically is putting forth an accusation that a person is imagining something. So the accusation that Christians who point this out are conspiracy theorists or they're people with active imaginations or liars when you can pick up just any major publication and read what they're actually saying. This is a common thing that happens. So uh, a spouse that's beaten, if their husband's going to gaslight him, they're going to say, oh, it was your fault. It was something you did. Oh, you're just imagining it, right? I'm not really abusing you. Oh, it was all a creation. It's a fiction of your mind. And so the gaslighting happens, and so I read in all these articles, Christians, in fact, I was just reading one in Forbes magazine, Why Are Evangelicals So Cruel was the title, and they're all imagining these attacks on them is how the author begins, and then the author says, and I was evangelical, and then the author spends the next three pages attacking Christians for all kinds of things. And I often thought, well, if you put Jew in there, What's the difference between this and any article you would have read in Germany in 1925? If you put any other population group, people would have been all over you for being a massive bigot. And yet this kind of thing is happening with increasing regularity. Now, it's not new to me. When I was at Virginia Tech, professors would make the most outrageous statements against Christians all the time in my classes. I heard it all the time. I was mocked as a Christian. Uh, they would regularly do this. And so if you've been in secular environments, you've seen this quite a bit. Now, it may be surprising to you if you've grown up in the, um, in the Bible Belt. This would, not be surpri- this, would, this would be a shock to you. But if you've grown up out of the Bible Belt, not a shock to you at all. But maybe the, the level, though, has become uh, much more heated. So why are things happening like this right now? Why, why this? Why the level of vitriol? Why the hostility towards believers? Well, I think our passages this morning have something to teach us about this area. So, last week we began to look into hate with a bit of an examination of the author of hate, Satan himself, and that's why I encourage you to turn back. Hatred is begun by Satan, and hatred is, is what we said was the currency or the operating system, if you will, of the kingdom of darkness. And so you have the kingdom of darkness, and you have the kingdom of light, right? The kingdom of light we equated with 
Macintosh, and the kingdom of darkness we equated with PC, right? And so we talked about that, and they're two different operating systems, right? And we, and we all understood that, which is evil, which is good, right? And so we understand the basics of that. Hatred, then, is the operating system. It's the opposite operating system of the kingdom of God. And yet, it masquerades off, oftentimes, or Satan's kingdom masquerades oftentimes as love. It's not love. And that's what we talked about. And we kind of dug into that a little bit last week. And we're going to continue to dig into that in just in all kinds of ways. But our passage this morning, um, well, let me... Let me, let me stop a little bit this. Um, our passage this morning says this. John fifteen eighteen to 22. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. It's one thing that Jesus starts with, right? He says something very different. So what we learned last week is that there are different definitions of hatred. So Jesus talks about hatred. But our culture also talks about hatred. And we learned that our culture defines hatred in very different ways. And so that's what made hatred kind of confusing. And so it's worth listening again last week. But we've gotten to the point where many people describe Christianity itself as a religion of hatred. Right? We are described as haters, according to some of the definitions today and many thought leaders of the secular left. Now, this attack should not take anyone by surprise. Secularists of all stripes have been attacking Christians since, well, the days of Jesus, just like all non-believers have. So, this attack by the secular left is simply the latest, and it's a rapidly spreading version in our country. But if you've been a faithful believer in any secular area of our country, or with any kind of secularist, or in Europe, then you understand this that it really doesn't matter if a person is a conservative or a liberal or an anarchist, a hunter, a vegan, a plumber, a rocket scientist. They're all capable of attacking Christians, right? This is like the standard way that a non-believer or a society is going to act towards a believer. This isn't unusual. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what he's talking about in our passage this morning. We as Christians shouldn't be surprised by that. John 15, 18 to 22. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. So the world will always hate us because they're enslaved by sin. And when you come to Christ, you are freed from sin, and you are now in the kingdom of light. So the kingdom of darkness will always hate you. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who's not a Christian will hate you because you're a Christian. What he's talking about here is society in general will, culture in general will. And many non-believers, when you really begin to live that faith, will have a reaction to you, and you need to expect it and not be surprised by it. In fact, If you're living among secularists, if you're living among pagans, and they're not reacting to you, 
you might begin to look at how you're living as a Christian. Are you making a difference in their lives? Are they not reacting to you because you aren't making any difference? You're not speaking of it. Do they even know you're a believer? Jesus himself, when he went, had a reaction everywhere he went, for the good and for the bad. And this is why he speaks the way he does. So our nation at one point had Christian principles, but we also had principles forged in the secular enlightenment. We were founded with believers, but we are also founded with secularists and non-believers of all types. So our country has, like all countries, sinned grievously because she is made up of sinners. So we had slavery, as did pretty much every culture that has ever existed. We had Jim Crow. How did we get there as a Christian nation, right? How did pastors support Jim Crow? How is that even humanly possible? And yet many did. We had lots of, and some of you have lived through that. We had lots of bloodshed of all kinds of people during the Wild West era. How is that possible? How are people pulling out guns and shooting one another? We've overcome much also because of our focus on faith. We went to war to free the slaves. Very few nations have ever done that in the history of the world. We've gone to war to help other nations. We've fed starving and poor in other countries to a level that few other nations in the history of existence have ever done. Believers from our shores, if you ever study the history of Christianity and what we've done in other countries, it is shocking. They've spanned the globe building colleges and orphanages, wells. We've helped develop crops. We've designed infrastructure, designed infrastructure for countless impoverished countries and people groups throughout the last two centuries. There's a book America's history in the Middle East, which tracks Christian history in the Middle East. And it's astonishing the difference that Christians have made throughout the world. And we've never heard of it because of the attack on Christians. We've done a phenomenal job making a difference throughout the world. We really have. These are people who lived the gospel and made a difference who most of us will never, ever hear about. In fact, If you drive down to Sanford right now and you go into the Beeson Theological Library, you will see uh, statues of martyrs, people who have died for the faith in this century, people who have sacrificed their lives, men and women around the world. But as we become increasingly secular, our values have dramatically changed. We become increasingly violent, materialistic, crude, self-centered, obsessed with sex, sexuality. And the last part is recreating our nature. We can't be trapped in male and female. We must be set free to become whatever we can imagine ourselves to be. Not what God made us to be, but to be free of God, we must destroy his creation. And that's what we saw last week. Satan is always about destroying God's creation, and this latest development by us is all about that. And so we've now created up to 108 genders. It may be more now. But they're all fictional genders, right? We have male and we have female. We don't have other genders. They're all fabrications of our own minds. Now, this is not to discount a genuine and very rare disorder called gender dysphoria, which affects roughly 0.4 
Some people say 0.04, so 0.4 to 0.04% of the population, not the current 10% or 17% that it's happening. That's, that's a fantasy thing. We had 0.4% of the population. That needs to be treated, and the church needs to minister to that population. That is a genuine disorder. It needs to be worked through, and it needs to be helped. It's serious. It requires thought and treatment. But this other redefinition will in turn enormously damage the nuclear family, which is the base unit in creation of any society. And it's intentional. And it's very intentional across our society. So look at the BLM, the Black Lives Matter website, originally read when I first looked at them. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. No, no mention of fathers, of course, here. But this comes from an increasingly common teaching on the secular left. The BLM founders, the three, were, of course, Marxists, and this particular teaching is rooted in Marxism, but it's also found, and I'm not picking on them, it's also found in feminist theory and, um, and homosexual theory and several other theories, but it's an attack on the family unit, Right? It's currently being pushed in our society. Christian teachings of family run directly counter to what our society is teaching. And these teachings are changing rapidly. And as they do, we are going to increasingly find ourselves on the opposite side of culture. And that's what's going on. We are rapidly finding ourselves on the opposite side of the state religion that our government is currently pushing. And as such, our beliefs are going to be called evil. They are being called evil, and you need to be prepared for that. So consider that in only 15 years, just think about this, just in the areas of sex. Sex between a husband and wife was considered quaint, right? To being now being seen as evil, if you just believe that. To the view that marriage should only be between a man and a woman, now that's considered evil. To the belief that there are only two genders now that is considered evil. That's within 15 years. Our teaching that there is one God is evil. In fact, just about every part of the Christian worldview is contrary to this new secular religion. And currently, we are the whipping boy in the press. Articles on evangelicalism and Christianity in general are getting nastier and nastier, as is the new secular religion, or as this new secular religion is becoming ascendant. So our faith teaches a different God. It teaches a different ethical system. It's completely contrasted. It's completely reversed from this new ethical system. And this is exactly what Jesus teaches is going to happen to us. He tells us not to be surprised, and we shouldn't be. Even in times when we thought that the church was in control of society, it never was. Jesus tells us that the path to hell is wide, and that the gates to heaven are narrow. In every society... There are fewer believers than there are non-believers. It's just that in a Christian society, the society purports to follow the ways of God. But there's always a larger group that will not follow the ways of God. And we should never be surprised by that. We should never be astonished that there are more non-believers than believers around us. So how are we as believers, and this is where I'll end this, how are we as believers going to function and called to function in a world that hates Jesus? The way that we've always been called to do it. Because this is nothing new. If you've grown up in the Muslim world, you've grown up in a world that hates Jesus. 
If you've grown up in communist China, you grew up in a world that hates Jesus. If you've grown up in any part of history, you've grown up in a world that rejects Jesus. Even when the church was ascendant, we thought you would be punished for reading your Bible during huge swaths when the church, we thought the church was in control. People who believed and said Jesus Christ alone was for salvation were murdered by the church. So throughout all of history, this has happened. This is nothing new. So how are we called to live as Christians? Well, we're called to live as Jesus told us to live. John 15, 19. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We're called to understand this. You are not to be of this world. We live here for but a short time. We are eternal creatures, creatures of heaven. This world is fleeting and passing. We're called to make a difference in it. We're called to preach the gospel. We're called to make a difference for the poor and the needy. We're not called to live as if this is all that there is. We don't live for money and materialism. We don't live for position and power. We live to bring people to Jesus. We live to help those in need. We live to make a difference for those who need that. Are you living to make a difference or are you living for yourself? We don't live for political party. Do not put your trust in princes in whom there is no hope. I see so many Christians telling me that Donald Trump is the answer or Bernie Sanders is the answer or Joe Biden is the answer or whoever your Messiah is. If I hear it again, I'm going to vomit in front of you. Please, don't be astonished when they lie. I can show you. And don't be astonished when they fail. They're humans. There is no human answer. There is Jesus. Get out there and make a difference. Vote for who you want. Whatever. I'm not called to tell you who to vote for. Andy and I as pastors and Chris and I as pastors are called to call you to Jesus and to get out there and make a difference. Right? And that's what Jesus says. Are you out there making a difference? The reason the church and the way the church has always responded is by getting out there, getting to Lincoln Village like Trung and Grace led us yesterday, being out there and praying for your neighbor, being out there and, and just ministering to them, reaching out to them. Are you about that? That's what we do to make a difference. That's what you need to be about. So this morning, if you realize you haven't been living that lifestyle, I would encourage you to pray and to recommit to Jesus. Go back with the prayer team, pray with them, pray on your own. Think about that. Think about reorienting your life and know that you can't do it on your own. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. You've got to rely on Jesus. You've got to rely on the Holy Spirit. You've got to recommit to that. If you feel the urge that you need to lead in these ministries, come see us, man. We'd love to, we'd love to partner with you in that. But I would encourage you this week, pray on it, think on it, meditate on it. Go make a difference for Jesus. Amen.